This is the PSA Podcast, where we deep dive into the business of technology and automation. Hey, good afternoon, good afternoon, Marty. How you doing? It is good afternoon, Joe. <laughs> Would you have had a challenging day already? It, it, it was is yeah, afternoon. Well, <laughs> morning, yeah. afternoon, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's been a great, uh, a great morning and early afternoon so far. So glad, yeah. uh, glad to have have you on board again for another uh, PSA BizTech podcast. It's on a Monday here, so getting ready to get started. And uh, today we're going to have a really interesting conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, we'll be discussing the business and technology behind Fanic America. They're one of the leaders uh, in the industry uh, of robotics in the United States, and we're going to be joined by one of their leaders as well. He's spent uh, over three decades there with them, uh, so it's going to be a real nice uh, podcast here and learn more about him and, and the company. So in 1982, Marty uh, Fanick was, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 1956 rather, Fanick was uh, founded in Japan. Uh, they started their journey focused on the development of servo motors and CNC controls. So in 1982, that's when Fanuc brought their technologies to the United States in the form of industrial robotics. Uh, so today, Fanuc is the global leader in CNC systems, robotics, and robo machines with over 40 million products installed worldwide. And so today, we're going to unpack all that, learn more about you know Fanuc America and Fanuc worldwide. Uh, but if you, our listeners, would like to learn more about Fanic America, they can visit their website at www.fanicamerica.com. So, Marty, I do have the distinct pleasure of introducing Dick Motley. Dick Motley is the director of Fanic America's Authorized Systems Integrator Network and General Industrial Global Sales Coordination. Dick joined Fanic America. Then, back then known as GMF Robotics, in 1990 and has held a variety of engineering and sales management positions, most recently running the southeastern U.S. region of operations in Charlotte, North Carolina, prior to accepting his new global role. He holds a BSME with distinction from Penn State University, we are, as well as two... <laughs> as well as two patents for innovations in automated systems. Look, I'm looking forward to learn more about that. In addition, he collaborates with other FANIC Group subsidiaries worldwide to ensure a consistent customer experience and seamless support for non-automotive multinational clients whose strategic plans include deploying robotic automation on a global scale. Dick, good afternoon. How are you doing? Great to be here, Joe. Thanks. Wow. So again, I'm really excited about this. Uh, you've had quite a career at Fanic America, uh, nearly 35 years, I guess. Congratulations yeah. to that. Uh, I Thanks. want to say that for sure. So, hey, tell us a little bit more you know, about yourself and then just, you know, a little bit about your career path at, at Fanic. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So, you got to go in the Wayback Machine a little bit. Uh, coming out of, of uh, Penn State, young Nittany Lion uh, starting, his, starting his career. And uh, my first stop was with General Electric. And you have to kind of, again, rewind a little bit and, and know that this was Jack Welch's General Electric, a pretty exciting place to be. Um, Jack was in the middle of taking GE from a $14 billion company in 1981 to 20 years later, a $400 billion company. Uh, in a space of 20 years, and, and I was there like right in the midst of that. 
Um, and uh, again, it's kind of hard to hard to imagine with uh, the situation today. But there was a time when when GE was the world's most valuable corporation. Um, so it was an exciting place to be. I was fortunate enough to be part of a, an, an internal automation group that was serving the needs of GE businesses. So we did automated systems for the appliance division that we were officially part of, but also for lighting and aircraft engines and some of the other divisions. Mm. And uh, out of that work, uh, I made contact with then GMF Robotics. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another and, and uh, I made the decision to uh, to leave GE and, and join GMF in 1990. So um, that was kind of the start of it all. GE gave me a great foundation in automation that that serves me to this day. Um, they, they really kind of had a sink or swim kind of approach to uh, young engineers. And uh, they, they gave me the chance to, to experience a lot of things, learn a lot of things, mentor me well. And then that carried well over over to GMF because of how similar, you know, how similar the industry is. So. Yeah. And then uh, here at GMF, started out in a, uh, a product management role, a pretty deep technical role, and then uh, kind of went on loan for a little bit to a uh, systems group that we have that at the time was executing a, a nationwide program for the United States Postal Service. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after we wrapped up that program, went back into my prior engineering role um, up until 2008, when I made the jump over to support our integrator business, which we'll talk about, I think, as as part of this uh, as part of this podcast, and uh, um, served in a role that was really focused on the companies in our integrator network that focused on on packaging applications. And out of that, um, got an assignment to, to go down and uh, help with some succession planning at our Southeast Regional Facility outside of Charlotte. And a few years after that, uh, came back to headquarters here in Southeast Michigan to help with some more succession planning. Uh, I joked that at the time I was the youngest of the old guys. So I, I, had, uh, I had a few years left to, to help with, uh, with succession planning. So, so that's where I am today. Yeah, Joe, can I jump in right away? Forgive Absolutely. me. I, I just, I just, uh, uh, what kept you there? Uh, you were with uh, GMF and, and you're still there. Was it the learning opportunities? Was it the innovation? Was it the exciting work? What, what kind of kept you involved and engaged and continuing to work there? What, what was exciting about it? Yeah, great question, Marty. And, and, uh, it, it, you know, looking back, it just kind of happened. But if I think about what you just asked, uh, you know, as an engineer by training, uh, robotics are a pretty exciting field, right? And the industry is always changing. Technology is always advancing. Um, we're finding new customers to serve, new applications to do, uh, ways to integrate with other technologies to, to just go further and faster and, and better. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's also been a lot of fun the, these last few years when I've had a more sales-oriented role. Uh, just really enjoy the people. I just really enjoy my customers. And uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of great folks out there doing a lot of great work to uh, help, you, you know, well, I won't say U.S. because it's Canada as well, but yeah. North American manufacturers and, and logistics folks to, to take our technology and create solutions that, you know, basically ad, advance their business. So uh, it's a lot of, a lot of factors rolled up in one. Uh, yeah. You know, if you, 
if, like I said, I'm an engineer by training, so robotics are kind of cool. If you're going to be in the robotics industry, the industrial robots, not, you know, service robots or medical robots, whatever. Yeah. If you're going to be in industrial robots, might as well be with the leader, and that's fantastic. Great. Yeah, absolutely. You. And, you know, so that was exciting times, you know, in the early stages, I would think, you know, in your career, seeing the development of the robotics industry, you know, coming into the United States. And, and FANUC, I, I understand, took a very aggressive approach and how they strategically attacked the marketplace and understanding that in order to gain the most impact and in, into the market would be through a systems integrator channel, not just relying on direct automotive or tier automotive type style clients, which are very important, but general industry and having system integrators to support that general industry was one of your goals. Is that, is that not correct? It is correct. And if I could unpack that even a little further. Please do. I, I said a lot. <laughs> in terms of uh, uh, a few things you touched on, in terms of that commitment, um, one thing that FANUC did differently is they, they entered into the JV with General Motors to create a, a fully independent, autonomous entity with U.S. management for the U.S. marketplace. Mm. And that was a, a, a distinctly different commitment from some of the other uh, players at the time that, that, that kind of set up satellite operations, but they were not nearly so autonomous uh, as, as we were uh, and, and continue to be to this day. Um, I think another, you know, another strength of ours are our two parents. I mean, General Motors at the time, 1982, they were the biggest car company in the world. Uh, of course, they, they ran into issues later on. We all know that. But again, you, you go back to 1982 and, and two incredibly strong parents like like GM and FANUC launching this new enterprise in the Americas and, and supporting it really well. Um, so that that was a big strength of ours. Um, you know, another strength that that um, it's sort of part of our culture. I don't know how necessarily strategic it was. It's just the way that it evolved. But um, we've had incredible stability at the highest levels of our leadership. So if you go back to that in 1982 and you start globally in Japan and, and you count the number of uh, gentlemen who have occupied the corner office there, and it's three. Mm. Dr. Esanaba, who kicked off the JV, uh, then his son, uh, Dr. Wayanaba, who's still our chairman. And now Mr. Yamaguchi, who, who's our president and global CEO. So that's at the top level. Drop down to FANUC America, you visit the, the corner office here, and the number of guys who have occupied that office is three again. Hmm. So a guy by the name of Eric Middlestadt was a General Motors executive that came over to launch the company, uh, came over to GMF. He was succeeded by Rick Schneider, who guided us through a, a pretty significant growth period right. and today we're fortunate to have mike chico who's, who's just uh, if you know mike um just a just a great ambassador for our company and for the industry so um so that the consistency of our leadership the the consistency of the vision the strategy you, you want to talk about that kind of rallying the troops and getting them all pulling in the same direction that that's a big deal and and that won't come out on any uh you know uh investor report or anything like that but but I, I have the benefit of, of that perspective and, and seeing those three leaders in globally and locally 
uh, kind of guide us through some some pretty significant growth and success. And I think that's a big part of it. Uh, I can. And then Joe, if I'll just <laughs> now, Keep so that, that was that, that was me riffing a little bit in terms of uh, some other factors. But uh, then to touch on your point of, about uh, our partners like PSA, um, that again was uh, I, I guess it was a little more strategic in that we launched the the new baby in 1982, uh, GMF Robotics, and things were going great. Uh, if you look, if it, it, we were so heavily automotive at that time, if you go back and look at historical automotive sales, they were going gangbusters in the early 80s, and, and life was good. And then uh, then 86, the 86 recession came, and um, there was a significant downturn in our business because we were so heavily, not just heavily automotive, but heavily general motors. And we realized, wow, these automotive cycles are going to be a rough ride. Mm-hmm. And so how do we diversify? And uh, so we, we struck out into the non-automotive marketplace and right away realized one thing, and that was, you know, it, it wasn't like the, the, the big three. These new customers that we were encountering didn't necessarily aspire to come to Detroit uh, to meet with their robot suppliers. So um, our first step to reach that non-automotive audience was to set up our network, begin setting up our network of regional facilities. And uh, in those early days, the the charter of those facilities was, hey, we're going to go out, we're going to staff them with engineers. We're going to do automation systems for all our customers. Mm -hmm. And boy, it didn't take long to realize that the non-automotive space is just so diverse Mm -hmm. from pharmaceutical to food to aerospace to, I mean, you name it, med device. I mean, there's no way that we could serve them all. And uh, and in 1996, we made a conscious decision to establish what we call our authorized system integrator network, which is our our network of relationships to get after the the general industrial space, general industrial non-automotive. We use them kind of interchangeably. And and that's been a huge part of our success. That was absolutely the right strategy. And uh, and that's really been uh, the 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 bulk of our success outside of the automotive market. So, Joe, you're getting an MBA class right now, yeah. <laughs> what he just ran through. Um, but I want, I want to jump back. Forgive me, Joe. I'm kind of fired up myself. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> you, you hit my hot button. I knew Joe was thinking uh, Marty's going to love that. When you mentioned the word culture, I'm a culture guy. Uh, I'm into that. Joe hears me all the time talking about stuff like that here at PSA because I work along PSA with different things. And uh, so, so I guess my question is, I see on our notes here, value proposition. Do you talk about your culture when you're presenting to whoever, direct customers or, or, your, or your integrators? Is that part of your story, if you will, that ingratiates people to you? I'll tell you, it's, it's part of Dick Motley's story pretty consistently because I think it is important. I, I think that uh, um, the consistency of that leadership, the consistency of the vision, the consistency of that strategy those are all things that build trust. You know, that, that Fanuc America is going to be the same partner tomorrow and five years from now and 15 years from now um, that we are today. And, and that, that's a partner you can rely on for the long term. So I do think it's an important message that uh, needs to be communicated to our customers. 
Wow. Yeah, Marty, and I think that also matriculates down through the organization and, and that stability, that mindset, because I'll tell you, you know, working with other OEMs that, that may not have that stability, it is a breath of fresh air knowing that that support, that structure, the stability, the consistency is there time and time again, that you know when, when you reach out for assistance, you know you're going to get it in, in an expedient manner. Uh, so, yeah, from a systems integrator perspective, you know, we appreciate that. And, and it's very well known. And, and I think it's known in the industry for sure. So, um, Marty, you did talk about that value proposition and that being one of them. But, you know, I, I think Fanic has just a number of value propositions that you can prop themselves up with. So, Dick, I'd like you just to go through a, a few of them and, and then some examples of, of each, if you could. Okay. Okay, sure. Um, you know, may, maybe one of the uh, most important things, you know, that, that to me is is closely connected to that that trust element is the way that we back our products. Um, we have a, you know, a logo and a slogan. It's, it's service first. But what it really is, is service for life. And we make a commitment that um, we will serve, provide service and support for any FANUC product, as long as the customer wants to run it. And uh, I've personally seen evidence, I've, I've seen robots from the 80s and the 90s uh, where we've, we've supported those. So, so that's, that's another big trust factor, right? That, that not only can you rely on FANUC as a partner, um, but you can rely on their technology and that you'll be able to, it'll be supported as, as long as you wanna keep it in production. So, so that's an important element and important part of our value proposition. Um, I think um, uh, another thing that is part of our value proposition is um, the level of support that we're able to bring to our customers. So like for, you know, for an integrator like PSA that's in our network, um, it really, it starts actually with our frontline salespeople, most of whom are came out of our engineering groups. So most of them are very capable engineers themselves and can contribute at a high level to concept development, you know, uh, application validation, those kinds of things. Um, but then kind of tying into my earlier comments about our network of regional facilities, those, those frontline salespeople are all backed up by a local regional facility close to the customer or closer to the customer than Detroit probably. Mm -hmm. um, where we have a, a engineering resources, brick, mortar, engineering resources, training facilities, robots, um, all local or relatively local to, to our customers. And then backing them up uh, are the resources and assets that we have here at our headquarters in Southeast Michigan. So we, we have an engineering group we call our application segment, which is actually where I started my career with FANUC. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is, you know, subject matter experts in different application verticals and uh, and also uh, subject matter experts in their specific product portfolios that they manage. And, and then one step beyond that uh, is a group that we were, uh, that was established at the, at the foundation of the company. Um, there was a product development group that came over from General Motors that had developed a hydraulic painting robot for General Motors. That was kind of the, the genesis of a dedicated, uh, you know, triple digit engineer, engineering resource for, for 
co-development with our parent in Japan. And those folks, I could, I could tell 10 stories about how they helped us be more responsive to the marketplace in the Americas and, and address customer needs. So um, those layers of support are really unmatched in the industry. And that, you know, that's also a big, big part of our, uh, of our value proposition. And, and, and the, the last thing I'll add that is somewhat related to that service first service for life, you can probably appreciate it. It'd be, it'd be hard to make that commitment if your products weren't reliable, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd have stuff breaking all over and be stuck with it for life. Um, one of the reasons we're so comfortable making that commitment is, is we've just got an outstanding reputation for reliability uh, with the with our with our servo motor and motion control technology at the heart of our robots. Um, you know, it, it's the it's the most widely used uh, industrial servo platform out there, and 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 again, that's at that's at the heart of every product we sell. So. So that's a big part of our value proposition as well. That you know, reliability is almost—it's uh, almost a sub-brand of Fanuc. Wow. Yeah, and you certainly have a a very deep product portfolio as well, from industrial robots, Delta robots, collaborative robots. It, it always seems like you're on the forefront. Fanuc stays on the forefront of seeing what's going to what's coming into the marketplace and reacting to it. And if they're not the first ones in, they make darn sure that when they do approach the market with a with a solution or product, that it's ready to go and it's robust. And uh, can you speak a little bit more about that when you when you talk about product development? I don't know if you're ever involved in that, but is it it's something they must take to heart and they really spend an awful lot of effort, time and money to making sure their products are robust and ready for market. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, Joe, there's there's so many things I could touch on there, but let's start with the product line. Um, you know, our, our our servo technology gets applied, of course, in our robots. We'll also sell a, a package of servo motors and a motion controller to a machine builder, like a CNC machine builder. And then we also have some uh, specialty, sort of specialty manufacturing machines that we make ourselves. We've got a high-precision electric injection molding machine we call the RoboShot. We've got a milling, drilling, tapping machine, small small machine that we call the robo drill. Um, but again, at the heart of that, every one of those is a fanic motor. But when you get into robots, you're absolutely right. We've got a product line that ranges from a little, uh, you know, one pound capacity, high speed little Delta robot up to a, a two and a half ton monster capacity robot. That's uh, the most powerful electric robot in the world. And, and then everything in between. And... Um, you know, we, we uh, have some sort of process-specific robots, like you, you would expect a, a painting robot is, is somewhat specialized because it goes into what can be a hazardous explosive vapor, solvent vapor environment. So we've got process robots like that. Um, our arc welding family of robots uh, makes it easy to deliver arc welding wire down through the wrists so that it's easy to uh, uh, attach the torch and manipulate it for a welding process. Um, we've got environmental ad adaptations for clean room and food. Um, and, and, and this is just the mechanical side, right? When you, when you get into the, the controller and software side, there's just an incredible array of software options that uh, make it easy to um, you know, to, to use our own vision technology, which is integral to our controller, uh, to um, adapt to third-party um, devices, other third-party vision systems, other other sensors, and so forth. Um, 
you know, communicate with just about anything. You want to co communicate with a PLC. You want to communicate with a plant network. You want to, so so all those options are in the portfolio to to help our customers and and in particular our integrators pick from the toolbox what they need to develop a, a robust production solution. Joe, if I can jump in again, forgive me. Um, let's go a little deeper. Meaning, how do you do that? That's easy to say. <laughs> that we do all these things, we're yeah. innovators, we're leaders, we're in first, we, we set the tones. How do you do that? Do you have a skunk works kind of situation? Do you have a special innovation group? Am I asking questions that I, is that okay, the questions I'm asking? <laughs> Am I making sense? Yeah, you're, you're making perfect sense. And, and um, it's, <laughs> I, I find myself wanting to say it takes a village, but that's too corny, right? So. Uh, it, it, Okay. <laughs> it, it really does come from a, a number of sources uh, in terms of product needs we see in the marketplace. We, we have our own sales team. We get fantastic feedback from our integrators oh, because you know. they're, they're out there uh, interacting with the end user community and, and recognizing what the end users want to do. And then they're able to articulate back to us, hey, you know, we, we love it when an integrator gives us, says the sentence, you know, Fanuc, we love your technology, but it would be really great if you could. Mm. When they when they say that, you know, finish that sentence, that that's like throwing a steak bone to a dog. I mean, we uh, <laughs> we just really enjoy that kind of feedback. So, um, yeah. And then you know, there's a there's a formal process um, where we get to together globally. The Fanuc Group globally gets together with uh, the Americas represented, Europe represented, Asia Pacific represented, and, and we all bring. Uh, market mm. priorities that we see in our local markets, and you know, not unexpectedly, the, the 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 candidate developments that go across all markets are probably the ones that get the highest priority. But that's not to say they're the ones that get the only priority. Yeah. And uh, well, well, even your answer is distinctive. A lot of companies hear that from integrators or from customers, but not all companies respond. Right. Yeah. So, so you responding and and taking that as serious as if you do and having the answers you do, that's distinctive. That's part of your culture, right. yes. I would assume. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. Certainly listening and then actually taking it back to the mothership and then doing something about it is key because hearing it, listening and hearing is one thing, but then actually taking that information and bringing products to bear upon request is really important. And uh, that, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Agreed. It, you know, I, I don't want to forget this, and I want to rewind a little bit back to the beginning where I mentioned you have two patents, and I, I, I don't want to get too far away from that. But can you two patents? Is it what's it related to? Is automation? But what are the two patents all about? Oh wow! Okay, so so one of them you can share it. Yeah, one of them. Uh, I, I think the patent might be etched in a stone tablet somewhere because it's uh, it's that old. <laughs> um, but but when I was <laughs> when I was part of that automation group at General Electric, uh, the appliance guys came to us with a with a what at the time was a really difficult challenge of um, detecting a feature on. It was actually a, a refrigerator. Imagine the the steel box of a refrigerator, but now lay it out flat so you got this this steel sheet going by and 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 of course there's notches uh in the corners where you where you fold that up and 
And the, the refrigeration guy said, hey, we, we need you to uh, find those notches and perform an operation based on where you find those notches. And um, the, uh, the, the line speed of the roll forming line where the sheet was going by, it was like 300 feet a minute is what I recall, such that those notches went by in a few milliseconds. And there, there was no way you were going to find those and act on them um, given PLC scan times at the time. Maybe they're better today, but there's no way you were going to capture that and do anything with it. So uh, I kind of I did a hybrid hardwired solid state uh, circuit that would, you know, did some solid state logic that that found those notches and, and performed the appropriate function and then complemented that with kind of some uh, supervisory on-off fault recovery stuff that actually did run on a PLC. So that was novel at the time. Uh, like I said, probably probably seems like old tech now, but uh, but it yeah, was novel good. at the time. And then the, the second one was during my career here at Fanuc, and um, we, had, uh, uh, we have a, a product series in our line that's kind of a hybrid articulated arm and gantry. And we had a customer that had an application where they were interested in mounting a large number of those gantry robots on the same rail such that uh, collision avoidance among all the arms zipping around uh, was a real challenge. And I cooperated with our development organization to, to develop the uh, collision avoidance algorithms that would keep from having expensive accidents with, uh, with all those robots zipping around on the rail. Wow. Well, that's cool. So. It leads up to my next question because you know, certainly today in manufacturing, we're seeing some some hurdles that uh, that some of these manufacturers, whether it be in like in industrial, like welding, or whether it be in packaging or goods to service and where logistics, there's some hurdles for them getting into the automotion automation market uh, and investing in robotics. So you know some of those things that you come up with that can help you know level out the playing field, so to speak, where you lower the hurdles, um, you know, help. So what are some of the other hurdles that you're seeing today? I mean, because there definitely is. You look at the, the number of robots installed per 10,000 of individuals here within the United States, and we're, we're still struggling to compete with, you know, some of the larger global uh, countries out there. So what are you seeing in the U.S. marketplace that are the hurdles, and, and what is FANIC trying to do to address some of those? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Joe. And, and, you know, probably we could do a whole podcast just on that. Right. But, uh, um, you know, it, it varies depending on which segment of the market you're talking about, as you might expect. Um, if, if I could touch on maybe uh, a few connecting threads that I, that I kind of see going across markets. One of them is workforce readiness to embrace automation. Right. So we've got this we've got this uh, real mismatch between capable labor force and, and the need in industry uh, and customers are trying to bridge that gap with automation. Um, but it, it, it brings a, a secondary challenge of, OK, now now who um, addresses the automation and, and who may, who maintains it and operates it and so forth. So um, one of the things we're doing to address that is. I think we're going on, it's more than 10 years, um, we've had a focused education program to try and help build that workforce of the future. And so we've partnered with uh, different academic institutions. You know, I, I think 
probably early on we might have imagined we were we were going after four-year universities, but it's become clear we're going. Our real targets are the two-year technical schools, the the trade schools, uh, even now getting down into high school, and if you can believe it, starting to look at middle school. So, I mean, the kids today are just so darn bright. Um, it's not always kids either, you know. So it, it, we we've posted several sort of case studies um, on our YouTube channel and so forth of of folks upskilling themselves uh, and investing themselves, taking taking some training and becoming skilled robot technicians or operators that can that can go out and, and fill that that gap in industry. So so that that's one key gap that uh, that that, you know, we see out there and, and we're working hard on and, and have had a lot of success. Um, but it, another second. another one, gap. One Sorry, go ahead. Don't you think, though, that even yeah. not to be argumentative, but wouldn't you think that other countries would still have the same kind of thing? I mean, if you look at China and some of the in Indonesia, do you think that that their workforce is any more skilled or talented than than ours? I mean, but they're adopting like yeah, crazy. Or yeah. is it just that they're actually just pushing it through and saying, no, we're going to do it and you're going to learn it. So good luck. Yeah, great, great question. And I think some of that has to do with how they define a robot. Um, I think there are some countries that, you know, maybe a, a simple two axis device that doesn't meet even the A3 definition for the Americas. Um, but uh, and, and then also, I think there's uh, a more acute need so that kind of the the forcing function is is uh, you know even stronger than in the U.S. and you know I'm I'm not saying it's it's a cause but I I think it's it's correlation that in terms of that forcing function you you look at China and Europe take a look at birth rates yeah no, you're right. and new workers entering the workforce mm -hmm. right so so the the U.S. is, is kind of kind of unique among the major economies in that. Um, Whatever our, our birth rate doesn't do in terms of keeping up with with population, um, we we benefit from from immigration, uh, you know, because everybody wants to come to the U.S. Right. So we've kept our nose above water. But there are some other countries where their noses are their, their whole heads are underwater <laughs> and, and it's kind of automate or die. You know, so so I think they've got, you know, even a, a more uh, more compelling need. So I think that that could be part of it as yeah. well. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, what else were you going to say about that? Sorry, to interrupt you. <laughs> Another, one of the other hurdles that you're seeing out there. Um, I was going to say, you know, part of it is uh, is on us um, to make our technology more accessible. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got at this point, I've got eleven grandkids, and the twelfth one will be here any day. And any of them over the age of two can pick up my cell phone or my wife's cell phone and get to the games they like to play and start interacting with them, you know, and, and, uh, you know, admittedly a, a robot's a lot more complicated thing. It, it, it interacts with the physical world. You actually have to f pick stuff up, you know, touch stuff and, or paint stuff or weld stuff. I get that, but I think there's a lot of runway for us to continue to exploit, uh, you know, advances in, in computing technology, compute power and, and, and software. And, and make our technology more and more and more accessible to more target customers. It's kind of make it a little more intuitive to, to learn and to adopt, right? And to actually utilize the tools yeah. that are that are provided to them, right? Yeah. 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 And and we are, you know, you asked what's Fanic doing about it. We we uh, we are definitely focused really heavily on ease of use. And if you if you see our our most recent cobot series, mm -hmm. we call them our CRX robots. 
It, it has a whole new user interface that's on a tablet and it's all graphically driven. Yeah. You don't, you can program the robot without writing a single line of code. It's all icons, drag and drop. That that's kind of the, you know, those are steps in the right direction towards that accessibility challenge that, that we're working. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. All right. So this, I like to, uh, kind of, Close up some podcasts to talking about a success story. Is there anything you can share with the listeners of a recent success story that would uh, be interesting to know? Yeah, I hope I don't embarrass you, Joe, but uh, in, in talking with our salesperson that calls on PSA, Laura Evans, um, you know, she, she's just really complimentary of your organization and how uh, well, you take advantage of. Remember earlier, I talked about all the layers of support we have for our customers, you know, regionally and and at headquarters and on and on. Um, you know, to us, that's success when when an integrator in, involves us in in solving their customer challenges and taps into all the resources that that we make available. What we think makes us the leader. Um, that's something we we point to with a lot of pride when when that kind of collaboration goes on and and a win pops out. So. I won't uh, won't name any of your customers or anything like that, so I'll steer clear of that. But just just uh, the fact that that happens is is really really uh, something we're proud of, and we want to keep keep continuing to yeah, do. Yeah, well, we thank you for that. You know, from the PSA side, yeah, Dick, we thank Panic America and yourselves and your team, uh, all of our representatives that you know, Sean and Ben and Laura that take care of us uh, from our three locations that we have in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, we really appreciate it. That's what we expect and which we love from our partnerships. And, and you guys are front runners there. And, and uh, we're just happy to be in your network for sure and, and look forward to great things in the future. So listen, I really want to thank you again for, for joining this podcast. I, I, this has been a thrill for me to learn more about yourself and about Panica. I, I really do appreciate it. Marty, do you have anything that you want to add before we wrap up? Well, Dick said that'd be a whole other podcast. Dick, there will be a whole other podcast. <laughs> we, will be re- we will be reaching out to you I soon to schedule okay. something. Yeah, yeah. We could unpack a whole lot of other things for sure, Marty. There are so many things we've got, roads we could yeah. go down. But uh, it's, Happy to uh, do it. And, and hey, Joe, if this podcast is exciting, you might need to get out more. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> he loves his business, yeah, though. That's, love, a, that's a good sign. Business, he loves his business. This is, this is what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. I'm right there with you, buddy. Much yeah. appreciated. It's great, but thank thank you Cheers. so much, Dick. It's been yeah, uh, really you. great. If somebody wanted to somebody want to get a hold directly of you, Dick, do you want to give out some information yeah. or just reach out to Fanic? How do you want to do that? Sure. I mean, they they uh, they can come to fanicamerica.com and there's a, there's a contact us form on every page. But hey, okay. if you want to contact me directly, I'm I'm Dick Motley at fanicamerica.com. We're going to put that on the show easy. notes. Yeah. So. Uh, Hopefully somebody will reach out to you. Well, we get good traction on this, so really, really, really appreciate your time. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Glad to be part of it. Appreciate the invitation. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the PSA BizTech Podcast. The PSA BizTech Podcast is a production of Production Systems Automation. More information on this podcast and PSA can be found at psasystems.com. That's psasystems.com.